The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife. Save the environment. Save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Today, we're going to shine a very bright and bold spotlight on what has been an almost publicly invisible battleground, the illegal trafficking, the illegal and trafficking in rhino and ivory and other wildlife. I'd like to welcome our special guest today, Julian Rademeyer, investigative journalist and author of Killing for Profit. Welcome, Julian. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here. You're calling in from Johannesburg, South Africa, right? I am, indeed. So um, I hope our listeners can tune in and enjoy the show. It will be available for download um, once we've aired live. Uh, I would like to give our listeners a little bit of a background about Julian. Uh, you're an award-winning investigative journalist. You've written and worked for many of South Africa's major newspapers, including City Press, Beald, The Sunday Times, Pretoria News, and The Herald. In a career spanning nearly two decades, you've reported from many of our world's troubled areas, including Somalia, Equatorial Guinea, Niger, Belarus, Egypt, and Lebanon. I understand you resigned from your position as chief reporter for Media 24 in South Africa. I'm sorry, that's Media 24 Investigations, to spend two years researching and writing for Killing for Profit. Yeah, I did indeed. Um, I'd, I'd um, been working for, for the uh, Media 24 Investigations, which was a, a specialist unit within the newspaper group for a number of years. Um, and I'd been doing quite a few reports during that time um, about rhino poaching and the scourge of rhino poaching. Um, and it, it eventually came to a point where, you know, I'd, I needed to, to focus completely on the book. I had quite, quite a lot more research needed to be done. So I, I did eventually resign to, to pursue that. That, that's quite a step to take. Um, your book seems to have brought the international black market and wildlife trafficking, uh, specifically rhino horn, to mainstream and current high-profile media. Uh, that previous headlines that others have tried to bring to the front lines, such as Vanity Fair's 2011 article, Agony in Ivory, by Alex Shumatov, or even National Geographic's Blood Ivory in the uh, recent film Battle for the Elephants by, with Brian Christie, uh, what differs dramatically in your expose is the hard-hitting investigation and reportage of facts and in such detail that the public simply is not privy to. I would say your book is the newest, best textbook for conservation policy and management. 
I've been involved in wildlife conservation for 30 years, and it looks like you've been an investigative crime uh, in, uh, journalist for uh, tw- two decades. And maybe um, it takes a, a crime journalist investigator to put all the pieces together versus conservationists who may suffer from tunnel vision. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think what, what I tried to do with the book was to approach um, the issue of rhino poaching and wildlife trafficking as a crime issue as opposed to, you know, pursuing it as, as a conservation issue. And I think that gives it a very um, different perspective. You know, you, you're looking at the criminal syndicates involved, you're attempting to identify the people behind the trade. Um, you're not looking at, as, as a, at the issue as an abstract concept. Um, so you're trying to expand on that. You're trying to put a face essentially to these, these faceless figures operating in the shadows of, of the organized crime world and people who are very much involved not only in trafficking rhino horn, but in trafficking all kinds of other species and people who've also been linked to other crimes, including, um, you know, cash and transit robberies in South Africa, high carjackings in South Africa, um, people who've been linked to the, to the drugs trade. So, you know, all those sort of elements come together. So your expose brings to mind, you know, the journalistic detonation that happened here in in the West in the political world of, let's say, Watergate or Iran-Contra or the drug cartels. But in those cases, the news literally burst onto the scene of our political and legal landscape, and the shocks were felt, you know, everywhere. With names, places, and dates and interviews that you conducted, why hasn't the business of trafficking in wildlife similarly exploded through the wildlife legal system? Well, I think it is getting some attention. Um, you know, there, it's it's a very high-profile issue in South Africa. It has been covered um, quite widely internationally. Um, you know, the the focus. I mean, increasingly, I, I saw recently there was a a New York Times piece which picked up on one of the the kingpins that I identified in the book. So more and more, we are seeing this kind of focus. Um, you know, Brian Christie, who you mentioned earlier has done some incredible work looking at the the ivory trade in a very similar way, you know, telling the stories of the people who are involved in the trade, looking at the criminal networks that are involved. Um, so increasingly, I am seeing more and more uh, reporting like that. But it hasn't always been the case. You know, often in South Africa, rhino poaching was treated as this fairly um, – you know, sort of nebulous type type of crime story. You know, there'd be a story about a rhino being poached. Um, you'd probably have an interview with the, the game farmer who'd lost the rhino, a um, couple of comments from police, but there was never anything really about what was driving this trade, who were the poachers, who are the syndicate bosses, the kingpins, you know, um, the people who are operating in the background um, and driving this trade. And that that fascinated me. Um, you know, and I, I wanted to also try and write a book that would appeal to people, not only people involved in conservation or people who care about animals, but, but people who would read and pick up a book and read a, read a crime thriller, as it were, and, and look at, you know, real issues about crime. And I think in that way, you know, you can take a very serious issue and you can appeal to a broader readership. I think you're absolutely correct. I think that's what need, uh, needed to happen. Um, maybe it's because here in the West we're rather isolated from uh, geographically and politically from the issues that are going on in Africa, South Africa, and where these wildlife-rich areas are, where these wildlife crimes take place. Um, perhaps that's the reason why it's uh, exploded so much onto our scene, and by ours I mean the West. Um, it only beca- Your book, Killing for Profit, only became available um, a few weeks ago. Uh, I remember I pre-ordered it and it finally came in. So um, 
it, it was actually written when? Uh, it came out in South Africa uh, towards the end of November last year. Okay. Um, and that's and it's been subsequently been released in the United Kingdom and also in the U.S. and Canada. Well, I'd, I'd say it's finally hitting the, the the stage here, and it's rocketing uh, at least through the conservation world, from what I've been hearing. So you became, um, as a crime investigator, you became engrossed with the rhino crisis. How did that start, and what were um, some of your inspirations and the challenges that led to you writing this, and uh, your journey getting through it to the pi- final publication? I think much of it, I'd, I'd been a lot of the work I'd been doing had been focusing on um, issues around political corruption, um, focusing very much on, on you know, um, senior politicians in South Africa, um, and you know, looking at those as- aspects of, of um, you know, crime in South Africa. Um, and you know, unfortunately, we do have a massive corruption problem. Um, and that extended to um, some provincial government departments, um, you know, who where um, people were issuing permits to um, uh, particularly Vietnamese and Thai nationals who were um, carrying out what had become known as pseudo hunts, essentially hunts of white rhino that are staged to to look like um, legal hunts. And they're, they're essentially just a, a channel of, of supplying rhino horn to the black market. But the story that really got me into it was um, a, a report I received. I'd actually picked up a small um, piece in a local newspaper about a South African farmer, um, as the report then described him, who'd been arrested in Zimbabwe. Um, and he'd been linked somehow to poaching. He later was released from prison um, there under fairly inexplicable circumstances and returned to South Africa. And I traveled there and I discovered this remarkable tale of um, – hunting rifles that had been stolen in South Africa in robberies, um, some of them very violent robberies, that were smuggled across the border into Zimbabwe. They'd been fitted with silencers in South Africa, and they were being given to, to gangs of poachers in southern Zimbabwe to, um, to poach rhinos and smuggle the horns out of the country. Um, and, you know, the more I began digging into that story, I, I managed to trace one of the, the rifles back to an elderly couple who'd been attacked on their farm uh, near the Zimbabwean border. Um, and they'd been quite, quite viciously attacked by a gang. And that rifle had then turned up in a poaching incident. Um, and it, it really gave me a, a sort of an insight into the, the operations of some of these syndicates, the, the types of problems that you're dealing with. I mean, one of the, the key poachers involved in that, um, one of the key Zimbabwean poachers involved in that incident was a former school teacher um, who turned to poaching you know, as Zimbabwe's economy collapsed, um, he couldn't earn an income as a teacher, so he became a poacher um, and was very involved with a number of gangs who'd started off by poaching um, uh, zebras and smuggling those skins out the country. And then, you know, they moved on to on to poaching. There was also military involvement from from ex-military officers in Zimbabwe. There was political involvement and it opened up a world that I hadn't previously really contemplated. Um, and that story led to success, you know, a number of other um, stories that, that followed on to that, including the very bizarre case of a, a, a Thai um, syndicate, which was recruiting young women in brothels in the Johannesburg area in South Africa um, and essentially taking their passports, applying for hunting permits in their names um, and then getting to pose as hunters so that they could get the trophies out of South Africa and onto the black markets in Laos, Thailand, and Vietnam. 
this is is this this is just astounding. I'm as you're talking, I'm going back and I'm remembering reading the book, which is an absolute must read. It's called Killing for Profit, uh, 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 exposing the illegal rhino uh, horn trafficking trade. You can learn more at um, Julian's website, KillingForProfit.com. There's other inter- uh, interviews with Julian throughout South Africa, and there's astounding images that Julian uncovered through his investigation. And what amazes me about this is having been a conservation, not having been, being a conservationist, that I didn't even know half of this. It wouldn't have occurred to me to look at it from this perspective. And, and that to me is what is so astounding is the meticulous revelations that you come across in your, that, that the reader comes across in your book. Um, it really is a wildlife crime. And it's not a crime that we think of here in the U.S. We're so disassociated from that. Um, so you found throughout your investigations from this perspective of tracing a, a gun, so to speak, which is interesting because here in the U.S. we're doing a lot about gun control. And um, you found that it's, it's traced mostly back to Thailand uh, or Vietnam. Why has the trade uh, in rhino horn exploded there recently? Well, I think the, you know, the, the trade's touching all of us. I mean, there have been cases in the U.S. where um, rhino horns have been smuggled out. There's quite a recent case in New York involving an antique dealer. There have been rhino horn thefts across Europe, um, museums being robbed with rhino horns, hacked off um, trophies that have been on walls in museums and in um, some castles and so on. There's an Irish gang that's been involved there. We've seen incidents across Africa. We've seen you know, incidents in, in Southeast Asia. Um, and essentially, one of the key drivers of that appears to be the um, astonishing economic growth of, of Vietnam and its gradual emergence as a regional economic powerhouse, um, probably since, you know, the, the early 2000s, 2000, 2003 onwards. Um, and you have, you know, a growing new wealthy elite who can afford to buy um, products that, that um, you know, essentially illegal products or products that have some kind of value. And it's steep to a degree in, you know, 2,000 years of, of medical tradition, Chinese medical tradition, which has heavily influenced Vietnamese medical tradition. Um, you know, rhino horn has been um, traditionally used to treat um, fevers, to treat uh, delirium, convulsions, headaches, drug overdoses even. There's, you know, um, cases mentioned in some of the, the ancient medical texts of it being used to, to treat cholera. Um, and, you know, even things like demonic uh, possession. Um, so there's, there's a long, very strong tradition of, of use that goes back um, over many, many years. Um, and um, that is, you know, it, it, it's something that continues to influence now. Um, in roughly in about 2003, a rumor began doing the rounds of a senior Vietnamese politician who'd been cured of cancer, supposedly by using rhino horn. And that in itself, although there was, there appeared to be no real truth to that and no one could ever identify this politician, um, that seems to have been a driver and a story planted, an urban legend essentially planted by syndicates to, to drive the trade. Um, the trade keeps shifting and changing, you know, the stories keep shifting and changing, driving it. Um, we, we have people now using it as a hangover cure. Um, you have people who have recently been using it as an aphrodisiac, as part of an aphrodisiac wine. Um, when previously, you know, the, the idea that rhino horn was widely used as an aphrodisiac was essentially a Western media myth. 
This is amazing. It's so incredibly multi-layered and it's not necessarily linear. It's, it goes in myriad directions and it's lateral and it's highly political and it's, uh, is, is, uh, is dangerous or, um, as convoluted and corrupted as the, um, the drug cartels, which is about the closest thing I can think of. And how it is the illegal trade is just so pervasive. So you mentioned a little while ago um, that they take the poor and the indigent from Vietnam and, and bring them over for these these hunts. And this is in your book that you know they're promised a, a safari, young women, and uh, then they're basically signed up and they must shoot the rhino. And you you get into that in your book, but then. You also talk about the expense, the the worth, the value uh, it, that rhino horn is more expensive than gold. What is it a per kilogram now? Well, I mean the current figures, um, as far as I've the last I've heard, I mean range anything between fifty thousand, sixty thousand, and seventy thousand US dollars a kilogram on the black market. Um, and I mean, if you consider that in the 1970s um, in Taiwan, rhino horn was being sold for $17 a kilogram. Um, you know, the prices have have grown in, uh, have grown massively. I mean, three three years after um, that price I just mentioned in Taiwan in the early 80s, um, for, they were charging $480 a kilogram, and the prices steadily skyrocketed then. But, you know, we, we've never seen prices like this before. Um, historically, there's, you know, the, the prices were much, much lower. But it, it gives you an idea of the of how um, the demand that there are for these horns and how endangered these animals are. I mean, the populations have been reduced substantially in Asia. Um, and South Africa is essentially the, the last stronghold for, for rhinos on the planet. You know, while, while there are other pockets in other parts of the world, South Africa is sitting with the bulk of the world's rhino population, and this really is the last stand. This is this is astounding. So um, we're going to take a little break. We're live with Julian Rademeyer, author of Killing for Profit, Exposing the Illegal Traffic in Rhino Horn. Our listeners can call in to 866-472-5788 or email to wildize at wildeyes.org with your questions or your comments. We would like to hear from you. You can learn more at killingforprofit.com where you will find images from the book and further interviews. You can also find links to this from our website at www.wildeyes.org under Our Wild World. And we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa 
and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Hello, and we're live with Julian Rademeyer, author of Killing for Profit and Exposing the Illegal Traffic in Rhino Horn. You're welcome to call in at 866-472-5788 or email to wildize at wildeyes.org. Julian, before we went to the break, we were talking some of the um, economics of Rhino Horn. I would like our listeners to understand that this really is a critical issue and that your book, Killing for Profit, is probably one of the best that I'm going to call conservation textbooks that highlights the um, multi-layered and lateral uh, positions throughout global wildlife conservation and legal in politics of the danger that rhino is facing and why it is so imperiled. Um, we were talking a bit before about the economics and the value of rhino horn and the upcoming uh, sort of resurgence of the trade in Vietnam. So you said that they bring pseudo-hunters from Vietnam, young men or women that are very poor, um, into South Africa and line up the permits. And then the value of rhino horn is so expensive and that there's a resurgence of using rhino horn in traditional medicinals. I'm... I'm, I'm confused, not confused. I'm curious. I'm, I'm amazed at the dichotomy between the value of rhino horn on the black market and how it can be available to, um, a wide population in Vietnam at that price. Well, I mean, I think, um, what, what's quite interesting about Vietnam is a lot of the, the rhino horn being sold on the streets, um, is essentially fake. The, the stuff that you buy from, the local, um, you know, traditional healer and so on. A lot of, w- of what is being sold are, are fakes. They're buffalo horns that are being sold as rhino horn. So very often you have poor people who scrape together um, whatever they have, particularly, you know, if it happens to be people who are cancer patients and, and so on. Uh, many cancer patients who come from rural areas in Vietnam are already at death's door by the time they hit the, the, the cancer hospitals there. And the conditions in those hospitals are pretty appalling. So, you know, there's, there's a degree of desperation in that. Um, 
and they will scrape together whatever they can to to buy. And often, you know, they are conned by 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 healers who will sell them uh, at a much lower price. Will sell them fakes, you know, as rhino horn. And that's one element of the market. Some people get lucky, you know, well, lucky in the sense that they, you know, they get the real rhino horn, which anyway doesn't have any any medical benefits. Um, but the the other side of the market is the new elite. Um, you have young people, wealthy parents. They buy them, but they buy rhino horns for the family. They give them as gifts. Um, you know, a case that I like to refer to is, is a, a very young, very modern um, Vietnamese woman in Hanoi who received the gift of a rhino horn from her father. And she would occasionally use it when she went out partying and had a hangover. Um, she'd grind up a little bit in a bowl, um, normally with sort of hot water, it turns a milky white color, and she would drink that substance. Um, then you have the other trade, people buying favors, um, people who are attempting to influence businessmen. Um, this was illustrated most recently by a case where the chairman of Vietnam's second largest bank reported the theft of two rhino horns from his house. Now, what was interesting about that case was um, not only that he felt that he was, was not under any threat from the police because he wasn't the legal owner of that, that rhino trophy, but he also had the entire rhino. He had an 800-kilogram stuffed rhinoceros in his house um, with, these, with these horns, which had been ripped off. Um, and I looked at aspects of that, and some, some Vietnamese journalists looked at that too um, until they were warned off and told by senior officials in government that they should stop reporting on the story. But essentially, um, he had been given the, the rhino as a housewarming gift by a hunter who'd shot the animal in South Africa. Um, and it, it would seem that it was some way of winning over favor, buying influence. So there's a lot of that sort of trade going on. There's also increasing con concern that Vietnam could be a conduit for trade to, to China um, and that horns are going out through, through there. We know very little about um, the trade in China. It hasn't been looked at in any real depth by um, you know, any NGOs or, or investigative agencies for quite some time. China for many years has been considered to be a, a success story um, in cutting down on the trade in rhino horn. But um, recently in Bangkok, I, I sat down for a, for a meeting with the head of the CITES Management Authority in Vietnam, and he very angrily and very pointedly blamed China for the trade. So I do think that's something else that, that really does need to be looked at. Um, but it, it is a trade that is being, is being driven by the very wealthy in, in many ways and, and, you know, the people who can actually afford to buy it. This, this is something we've discovered. We've recently um, made a film, and I sent you a copy of it, uh, The Elephant in the Room, which is mm. targeting China and um, the elite coming into um, new wealth and wanting to reconnect with their cultural identity, which happens to include ivory, and in your case, um, or this case, rhino horn. Um, so uh, I forgot where I was going to go with that. Um, what... What is amazing is um, how multifaceted your investigation is, and this is why I certainly urge our readers, uh, our listeners, to pick up *Killing for Profit* and read it. It's an inter—it's a—it's like reading an international crime th thriller. It's—it's um, it's true. It's astounding. You're, the detail in the interviews and the information you uh, provide in this book and what you went through in your life to get this, this information is just astounding. And as you've been saying, it is not just a, a single 
issue. It's not just rhinos being killed for their horn. It's, it's, it's a whole issue between what the horn means and the resurgence. So, um, you also get into your book. This, there's so many layers and so many directions we can go in this conversation um, that the world's largest population of rhino is in South Africa. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what this is doing, uh, the rhino trade and the illegal traffic is doing to the rhino population in South Africa? It seems like there's some loopholes and catch-22s going on here. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's quite a frightening picture. I mean, we've seen a, a steady increase in rhino poaching. Um, probably, you know, the year that that um, really frightened people was 2010 when we had 333 rhinos poached. I mean, in the early 2000s, we were losing very few. Um, the following year, the figure jumped to 448. The next year, it almost doubled on the 2010 figure by, to 668. And so far this year, we've lost roughly 230 rhino. Um, at the moment, um, we are losing on average about two a day or just over two a day. And the Kruger National Park, which is our, our largest national park, um, it's probably about the size of Israel, is losing at least one, um, sometimes more a day. Um, so it, it very much is um, a situation of crisis. We, have, um, we are probably going to see um, another terrifying record this year that will top last year's number. Um, already the speculation is that we, we could, we stand to lose anywhere between 730 and 800 rhino this year. Um, and that, and what, what is worrying about that is that we're nearing what conservationists call the tipping point. Um, you know, predictions are that that could be reached in 2015. And essentially the tipping point is when, um, poaching begins to outstrip the rate at which the animals are capable of reproducing. And you begin to see a steady decline in the population. Now, if you look at what happened in Africa in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s with the black rhino populations, um, where they were essentially uh, decimated, um, you know, currently today there's about 5,000 black rhino, just over 5,000 black rhino left in the world. There was a stage when there were 80,000, um, 100,000, um, and that wasn't too long ago. So the, the great fear is that we could, if something doesn't change quite dramatically or if there aren't um, successes in law enforcement and so on, that we could hit a point where the population begins to slide. And if South Africa loses the battle, then essentially the battle for, for rhinos is all but lost. That, I'm just astounded. Um, I'm sitting here shaking my head and just um, I'm astounded. So in, the, in terms of the rates of how many rhino South Africa is losing a year and the numbers that you just put out, does this also correlate that um, there is a resurgence in rhino breeding? How do they keep up? I mean, how, <laughs> where are the rhino coming from? Is there breeding programs? Are they breeding for this rhino trade, or how does that work? Well, essentially, um, what what happened in the in the 1960s, um, and it was it was a, it's probably one of you know South Africa's most remarkable conservation success stories was that um, white rhino populations were very threatened. Um, plans were made to move rhino populations around the country um, and also out of the country. So some were shipped out. I think, some, if I recall correctly, some were shipped to the U.S., some to, to countries north of our borders um, and and to, to other parts of Africa. Um, and what was also done at the same time was a, a, a program to encourage private game farmers to, to take rhino on board um, to 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 breed with rhino, 
Um, and one of the key elements of that was hunting. Um, you know, South Africa hunting was was uh, hunting of rhino began again in 1968, um, and the idea was that it would be controlled hunting. It would give the animals a value. Um, hunts, limited hunts could be sold, and that money would then go back into conservation. But what happened around about 2003, when the first Vietnamese hunters came in, is that process got corrupted. Um, Vietnamese hunters came in, they discovered that they, they, as any international foreign hunter, could apply for a hunting permit, um, and they could um, shoot a rhino, take the trophy, and then sell it in the black market. Um, and that was the gap they found. They'd found essentially you know, almost a legal way of obtaining rhino horn for the black market. Um, and the, the hunts increased steadily. Um, you know, if you if you look at the the figures, I mean, between 1968 and 1994, um, which is a 26-year period, um, roughly 820 rhino were hunted in South Africa. But if you take you know, from 1995 to 2011, 1,300 rhino were shot, um, and that's only a 16-year period. So you can see an immediate escalation there. And I mean, previously, the people who hunted rhinos were, you know, wealthy American trophy hunters, European trophy hunters. Um, they're, they're not cheap hunts. They, they aimed at people with money. But here the syndicates came in because they could make so much more by selling the trophies illegally in Vietnam. Um, and, you know, there were a number of pointers to this. It took, it took the, the government in South Africa quite a long time to, to react to it. Um, one of the most disturbing was that the numbers of rhino trophies exported from South Africa to Vietnam um, and w which were issued with CITES permits did not correlate with the numbers of rhino horns imported into Vietnam. So if you, if you look, for instance, between um, 2006 and 2010, just over 600 trophies were exported to Vietnam from South Africa, um, according to the CITES data. But only roughly about 100, 150 were, were ever declared to have been imported into Vietnam. They essentially vanished. And, you know, the belief is that they were sold off onto the black market. So what was meant to be a process that allowed for limited hunting um, to, to essentially put money back into conservation and to encourage game farmers to keep rhino was corrupted. Um, South Africa has now cracked down on that. Um, there are no permits being issued to Vietnamese hunters anymore. There are none being issued to Thai hunters. There's been a crackdown on Czech hunters as well, hunters from the Czech Republic, who had also been working as proxies for Vietnamese syndicates. Um, and so th that, that has been f fairly successfully curtailed, but it's a process that took nearly a decade before they shut it down. So you're saying here, and, and you mentioned in your book, how adaptable these syndicates are and how untouchable the, the kingpins are. Um, and, and that rhino, basically, in the, the historical rates of decline for rhino, will not be able to withstand the, the same kind of sudden increase if it continues. Um, and I know it's expensive for people to keep wildlife, and wildlife has to have a value in order to uh, to make money from it, an economic value. So I, I guess I'm having a hard time understanding in South Africa – partly how long it's taken to crack down on this and the not not in a negative way just in understanding um all the loopholes and and the rise in the, in the rhino trade and that um how are we going to 
protect this? How are we going to protect this resource, make an economic benefit, get a value so that we can, ranchers can continue to breed rhino, um, but close the loopholes, as you said, uh, CITES, uh, there's a lot, there's a permitting process here and that the syndicates are adaptable. So how do we expect to crack down when there is a legal rhino hunting trade and there's an illegal rhino horn or and there is no legal trade in rhino horn? There's, how do we deal with this? It's, I mean, it's an incredibly complex issue. Um, the, uh, what, what, you know, the, the concerns around, um, what was happening with, with the hunting permits, the corruption of the process, the fact that provincial permitting officials were in on it and that, that were making themselves guilty of corrupt practices, that has uh, attracted some, some degree of attention here. I mean, the, the national department has clamped down quite firmly, and they seem to have brought it under control, although none of those provincial permitting officials have ever been um, charged or arrested or prosecuted for their roles. Um, and the, 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 the difficulty is, you know, there was talk a couple of years ago about a moratorium being placed on hunting, um, a prohibition on hunting, um, and the difficulty there is that rhinos are already losing their value. Um, if you buy a rhino in auction today in South Africa, the price you're going to pay is, is a lot less than you would have paid five, six years ago. Um, so for private game farm owners, um, you know, any sort of clamp down on hunting would be extremely difficult because they, you know, particularly, I mean, anyone um, who, who runs a game farm needs to make an income out of the animals that they keep in stock. Hunting is a very big part of that. Um, and many many game farmers are not are not keeping rhino because of the massive security costs involved. Um, you know that in itself poses a threat. Um, and you know, I mean, the, the 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 terrible side of that is that there are a few corrupt individuals, uh, well, slightly more than a few, but 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 people who, driven by greed, took took advantage of the system and corrupted the system to allow Vietnamese hunters to 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 get these trophies out. And that in its own way is now threatening um, what, what many game farmers have been trying to do. Um, you know, the, the, those who, who, who allow for legitimate hunts who, who don't overstep the boundaries. Um, and and that, that is an incredible challenge on that level because it, for rhinos to survive in South Africa, um, private game farmers are, you know, very much part of the, of, of the equation. This is astounding. We're, we're going to take another little break here. Um, we're live with Julian Rademeyer. We're discussing his book, Killing for Profit, which exposes the illegal rhino horn traffic and other uh, trade in wildlife uh, trafficking. Uh, you can find out more at his website at killingforprofit.com. You can call into our show, 866-472-5788, or send me an email at wildize at wildeyes.org. And we'll be right back with Julian after the break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. 
our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect, it's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. We're live with Julian Rademeyer, author of Killing for Profit, and his scathing expose uh, exposing the uh, illegal traffic in Rhino Horn. We've got a question. Um, Julian, who are the people in Vietnam or China that are purchasing uh, the Rhino Horn? Uh, what type of person is this? Well, that's, I mean, that's one of the key challenges is, you know, often there's talk about educational programs. For, for a long time, there was this um, very sort of jingoistic portrayal of uh, people who used rhino horn as, you know, illiterate peasants or something along those lines. Um, and many of the people who are buying rhino horn now would appear to be very influential, very powerful, very educated and very wealthy businessmen, politicians, bureaucrats, um, you know, people with disposable wealth. Um, and those are the people you've got to try and convince not to use it. Um, the, you know, as I mentioned earlier, many of the, the uh, poorer people who are buying rhino horn are being sold fakes. Um, a lot of what's sold commonly on the streets in, in places like Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City um, are um, fake uh, buffalo horn or bits of buffalo horn that are being sold off as rhino horn. So the, the real rhino horn that is being sold is either going to, to or appears to be going to um, wealthy businessmen in a number of documented cases. And then there's also concern that some of it is being stockpiled, that people are essentially, you know, betting on extinction um, and that they, they are 
hoping that that would potentially drive the the market up. Although they, you know the firm evidence of that is not there, but it's it is borne out by the fact that so much of what is sold commonly on the streets is 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 fake. You do cover in your book um, a character that you met that does make fake rhino horns. It was a fascinating chapter, so to speak. So if you'd like to learn more about um, what we're talking about, do pick up the book, Killing for Profit. It's available at Amazon.com, and it's also available for a Kindle download if you just can't wait um, and get started. This is an astounding uh, book. Um, I am thrilled to be speaking with Julian Rademeyer and uh, the author, and um, we've been talking about the multi-layered and multi-faceted issue that is not only protecting the species of rhino, um, but the the trade in it and how adaptable the syndicates are and the the thriving black market, and how do we go about changing cultural perspectives to protect the rhino. I'd say that's our most difficult issue. Um, but a good lead-in to that would be um, up- upgrading the, the legal force, the, the teeth of the organizations that can do something, which is not just the ranger on the ground, but the organizations that um, have have the legal abilities, such as CITES or uh, the law enforcement teams, whom you mentioned many in South Africa. Um, one source in your book had said um, this, this fight, this war on rhino poaching can be won by a small, dedicated group of people. I honestly think it's going to take more than a small, dedicated group. I think it's going to take a groundswell movement of many dedicated people, not only the rangers on the ground and law enforcement, but um, people like me or our listeners to stand up and say this – to, to shine the light on this, to, to let it stop. Uh, what, do, what do you think? Do you think there will be a, a way to um, manage rhino horn, protect the species, and do you think it – several questions at once at you. Do you think it's going to entail um, a legal trade in rhino horn? I think, again, that's a, you know, it's a very complex issue. I mean, um, and I, I do tend to agree with you. I think it will take more than a, a, you know, a small group of dedicated people. Um, I, I met some remarkable people while researching the book, um, you know, people who were investigators, prosecutors, um, people who worked for the South African National Parks, um, people who were working, you know, in places like Vietnam and Laos, um, doing investigations, digging up information, um, and really incredible people, um, many of them taking you know, exceptional risks to do their jobs. Um, but I do think it does need more than that. Um, you know, the, the debate around legalization of, of rhino horn is probably the, the thorniest debate in conservation today, at least in, in South Africa. And judging from my experience at CITES, um, you know, in, in, in other parts of Africa too. Um, and it's controversial for a number of reasons, one of them being that Vietnam has done very little to enforce the, the current um, ban on, 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 on trade. They've done very little to crack down on any of these syndicates. Um, the bosses, people, you know, some of the people I tracked down, um, particularly one, one key figure who's been described as the, the Pablo Escobar of wildlife crime, who's based in, in Laos, is completely and utterly untouchable. He's friends with the prime minister. He's traveled to Vietnam um, on official state visits. Um, he's extremely well connected. Um, he's worked in state-run industries before in 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 the Lao Republic, um, and he has um, essentially sort of built himself up a a um, 
you know, a, a protective or built up a protective wall around himself. You know, no one can get to him. And, and the same is true of, of many of the key players in Vietnam. Um, so when it comes to legalization of trade, one of the things that needs to be uh, done to satisfy CITES is that South Africa would have to find a trading partner. At the moment, the Department of Environmental Affairs has opened up what they call the debate on trade. Um, and they're saying they want, they want to talk to people, get feedback, um, and so on. But they've also put out feelers to, to um, Vietnam and China and others about you know, looking at the possibilities of legal trade. Um, and that in itself, you know, given the current situation that Vietnam's failing to crack down, um, is concerning issues around who would you trade with. That right. you know, that hasn't been answered. Would you would you set up a um, a, a sort of a, a special trading industry? Would you set up a central selling organisation, a bit like um, has been done with the diamond industry? Um, how would you handle that trade? And then most importantly is um, how big is the market? What what market are you supplying? We we have absolutely no idea of the scale of the market. I mean it's 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 made you know potentially um, even more worrying by the fact that um, so much of the horn currently being sold is fake. Um, you know would would legal trade um, have an impact on that? Would legal trade with a country like Vietnam have an impact on reopening demand in a place like China? Um, so these for me are many many questions that that do need to be answered. Um, you know I'm personally not not opposed to trade if it is a solution. But I do think it's something that we need to tra- tread very carefully on. Um, you know, unlike unlike elephants, rhinos don't have to be killed for their for their horns. Um, the horns can be harvested and they regrow. But um, the questions that, that have to be answered: the scale of the market, who would we do business with, how would we run this, and you know, the danger that we're sending a mixed message to a place like Vietnam. Um, you know, on the one hand, we're saying crack down on the illegal trade, crack down on the syndicates. But on the other hand, we're putting our feelers saying, you know, possibly somewhere down the line, we'd like to trade with you. So, so those are real questions. Um, the other thing that's, that's also been largely ignored is that if there were to be legal trade, it's many years off. Um, the next CITES conference is in three years' time. Um, I, I would be surprised if, it's, if something like that is, is passed or voted, voted through at the next CITES conference. I think it would be a long way off. So what do we do now? And that, right. that, is, the big, that is the big question. That is the huge question. Um, as I've said, this book, Killing for Profit, uh, is an astounding read. It's multi-layered. It's multifaceted. It gives the reader uh, an incredible idea of just how convoluted uh, this issue about rhino and rhino horn is, that right now it's mostly an illegal trade and it's headed up by huge syndicates that are highly protected or untouchable, which is kind of hard to believe that we can know who these people are. It reminds me of the mafia, that you, you can know who they are and you've, you've exposed them, you've got pictures of them in your book, and yet they're untouchable. So it's going to take a combination of political will, um, parastatal government and um, parastatal will like CITES and UNEP, and to, um, as, as Julian said, it's a long way off to come up with a solution to keep the rhino alive. So our issue is between... Now in 2015, that's only a couple of years away, how are we going to keep this species alive? Um, in, in your, uh, since, since your book, um, has your opinion and involvement in the rhino crisis issue grown? Um, are you continuing to investigate it? Uh, do you feel more like 
Um, oh, that's not really a way to put it, that you're on a conservationist side. Uh, how do you cross that? Are you going to um, continue to investigate this and, and see if something can be done on the, the crime side of it? I think, I mean, I've, I've continued to approach it as, you know, as a reporter, but I think, you know, in many ways the the writing of the book and the, the, the um, you know, the research that I was doing, the stories that I was hearing, um, you know, did become a life-changing thing for me. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's opened up a path looking at aspects that I probably would never have looked at before. I've been doing, you know, other wildlife crime investigations, looking at various elements of um, wildlife crime. Um, recently in West Africa, looking at the trade in chimpanzees, also the trade in, in ivory, reptiles. Um, you know, it's it's this massive growing um a problem, you know, it's what's more than a problem. It's, 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 it's absolutely quite frightening what, what is happening and the scale of the legal trade and, you know, the, the limited ability that most places have to, to crack down on it. Um, you know, you have, you have bodies like CITES, but CITES is dependent on member states to, to, to police the convention or to enforce the convention and to implement legislation that gives, gives that, um, gives the convention teeth. Um, and many countries in Africa don't have that legislation. Um, you know, South Africa is one of the rare exceptions where we do have fairly advanced legislation. It is slowly being, uh, it is being improved. Um, and South Africa probably by the next CITES conference will be fully CITES compliant. But if you go to a place like Guinea or a place like Togo, the CITES officials on the ground are corrupt. They're in league with wildlife traffickers. Um, they are getting kickbacks to, to help smuggle out shipments. Um, ivory traders are operating completely openly. Um, people are, you know, smuggling out chimpanzees and gorillas. Um, and, you know, flouting every possible attempt to stop that sort of trade. So, you know, it, 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 it's quite a gloomy picture in a way. Um, but it, it's something that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm continuing to do it. I'm, you know, continuing to look at. Um, I, although I have recently started, you know, working in, in another line. Um, but it, but it is, a, you know, it's a, it's an ongoing project for me. And in some ways, it's, you know, with the book, it became a project that that consumed me. I'm really glad to hear that. We don't have, unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of time left. Um, so I, I just wanted to get into another point. I'm not sure if you're aware of a TV series that's happening here, uh, Battle, Battleground Rhino, where they're bringing in paramilitary forces. Um, so it sounds like maybe, uh, and a friend of mine in KWS is talking about we have to rebuild or not even rebuild, invest deeply uh, financially into um, – infrastructure, uh, trained rangers, law enforcement, bring that up to speed so that the government and the rangers and everybody who's involved in this has some teeth, so to speak, to um, protect the rhino and to make it economically viable to keep them alive. And um, maybe that includes a trade in legal rhino horn, which Julian said is many years off. So don't, I don't really want to hear all my listeners getting all in a, in a twist because we're talking about a legal trade in rhino horn. We are not at this point. That's a long way off. What we do need to discuss and find is a way to protect rhino and keep them alive now in the next few years um, so that we can come up with solutions. It's critical. Um, Julian had talked about we're reaching tipping points. South Africa has the majority, I think you said 75% of the world's population of wild rhino. Um, 
So, and you're going to continue to investigate this some. I hope we get to hear more from you. Uh, you'll keep us posted on your website, killingforprofit.com. Uh, our listeners can go there or our website, wildeyes.org, and uh, find out more. And we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or join us on the discussion groups through LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter. And get the word out there, people, that this is something we all have to pay attention to. Um, Mr. Rademeyer's book has shown a bright, bright spotlight on this uh, trade that's going on. It's uh, abhorrent. It's it's tragic. It's it's real. And um, Julie and I would like to thank you so much for being a guest. And maybe we can have you back again. I'd love to. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. Thanks so much. And thank you for all your kind words about the book. Oh, it's, it's not even out of kindness. It's out of um, an absolute astonishment at what is going on. And once again, listeners, this book is a must read. Uh, if you like a good crime thriller, pick it up. The only difference is this is real. And um, Mr. Rademeyer spent two years investigating this. And uh, it's an astonishing book. It's an astonishing uh, – I, I really don't even have words. Uh, it's it, it's not an easy read. It's a tremendous read to absorb just how pervasive the illegal trafficking in rhino horn and wildlife is. So once again, I'd like to thank you, Julian. I hope to have you back one day and we can talk about where you're heading into now and um, look forward to keeping updated with uh, your, your research and your investigations. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you, and welcome uh, to Our Wild World, and we'll see you again next week with Dr. Max Graham of Space for Giants, Elephants, and a member of the IUCN Elephant Specialist Group. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 